We're in Genesis chapter 24, as you know. Um, this is a very long chapter, and uh, this part starting with verse 34. I'm not going to read all of this, but uh, b- because Eliezer, or the servant of Abraham, just reviews everything that just happened. But let's just make sure that we're all kind of on the same page here, because several of you, because your business and so on, you're not always able to be here. And if you didn't listen to the podcast, I want to make sure that you're caught up. Chapter 24 is about one key item. That item is choosing a wife for Isaac, the covenant son. And Abraham, as you know, lives in uh, the Beersheba, and he's kind of relocated just a little bit to the west, around the edge of the Negev desert uh, area. And he's among Canaanites. He's living in a Canaanite area. We were introduced to that in the previous chapter. But anyway, and his, his, his base, basic concern is, I don't want my son to marry a Canaanite. So he sends his servant. Uh, in chapter 24, he's not identified by name. He's just called the servant. Many assume, although I don't, we can't prove it, that this is Eliezer, the servant that's mentioned in chapter 12 of Genesis. But that's hardly the main point. Two key ideas, two key thoughts, two key propositions explain the importance of this chapter. Number one, and I wrote this on the board last time, it's translated as covenant love or loyal love or steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word. Yeah, I'll write it. I'll write it on the board. Yeah, it's, and it's not. I would, you know, I would love someday to just teach you guys Hebrew. That would really be fun. But I suspect the, drop, the dropout rate would be really high. You know, we, I, I, I know a class that's going to start next year. It's in Lincoln. The Hebrew word is chesed. The Hebrew word is chesed. H e s e d. Sometimes you'll see it written C-H-S-E-D, trying to put in writing the guttural sounds of chesed. That's really how you pronounce it. But it, it, I mean, it really is one of the most important terms in the Bible. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV, and they translate it steadfast love. But it has the strong idea of covenant, loyal love of God. And so what Eliezer or the servant keeps saying is this will show that God will be faithful, that God will guide me, that God will provide, will demonstrate the chesed of my God toward my servant, or toward my master, I mean Abraham, and that loyal love. And that, that's just extremely important because remember, Isaac is the covenant son. And what God will preserve is that covenant line that's ultimately going to lead to the Messiah. That's why this is so important. That covenant line must be preserved. And so Eliezer keeps referring to that, that word tested, loyal love, covenant love. And you, you see it uh, just a number of places in this chapter. The other key theme or the other key proposition of this chapter is the providence of God is the providence of God. And we talked, again, when we introduced the chapter and we worked our way through it. Now, remember, that phrase, providence of God, is like a subset of the sovereignty of God. In other words, God's sovereign. He rules. He accomplishes his purposes. We use the word providence, the providence of God, to stress that God is deeply involved in human history. He's not an absentee landlord. He's deeply involved in history. He's providentially guiding. I, th- I think I said this last week. Uh, if you accept that, that there is such a thing as the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, it's real in your life, what that means is there's no such thing as a coincidence. That's hard, that's hard for us to process. I mean, we can say it in this nice, comfortable room on this relatively beautiful day. Beautiful for me is 40 degrees or lower, but this is okay. It's, it's getting there. But anyway, I'm trying to add a little humor to the intensity of this discussion. <laughs> it's not working. Nobody got it. So anyway, but the, the, 
the the truth is, if my God is in control and my God is providentially guiding and providing, then there's no such thing as coincidence. I'm not a victim of randomness. I'm not a victim of chance. Do you understand how I'm putting that? That randomness doesn't explain my life. What explains my life is I'm walking hand in hand with God. And even if I am in disobedience to me, to him, his providence is still real. Because he's going to correct me. He's going to chastise me. He's going to get me back on the track because he loves me. So that that's, I'm trying to get you to think applicationally about this very long narrative that just keeps going on and on and on because it's just showing. As he now rehearses the story again for Laban and his family, he's just saying again, God was involved in this. My master's desire, as God is showing his chesed to him, his loyal love to him, is real. And God has chosen Rebecca to be Isaac's wife. And you, Rebecca's family, have to understand that. And so he just reviews it. And it's, it's really, that's the point of this. It's long, it's detailed, but that's the point. Okay, Rob, Rob, Rob and then... Last week, I, I want to prove I listened to the podcast. Oh, good. I, last week when I was gone, I think it was last week, you qualified that the, the province as to it be in the context of his relationship with you, which I took as meaning that there might be coincidences, but not every coincidence is just a coincidence. Now your statement this week is stronger than that. You say every coincidence, no coincidence, is our coincidence. I, I, I don't know if that's important. Well, I don't, I, I don't remember... The, the context in which you're uh, you're reviewing that, honestly, Rob, I just don't. But um, because I, I know, I, I have said many times in my teaching and, and so on over the years, that if we believe in the sovereignty of God and th- that his providence is real, there really is no such thing as a coincidence. i, I, I got to ask this question. On the way in, I was listening to a certain very popular, most popular radio talk show host. And do you, you remember? He asked the question... And it was a rhetorical question. He doesn't want any calls. But he asked the question, do you believe that God punishes people or nations? Who will punish him? Pardon me? Who will punish him? Yes. Who will punish yes. Him? Yeah, I heard that too. <laughs> a rhetorical question. And I said, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those, duh. I mean, that's like, I mean, because the answer, no, well, the answer to that is, I mean, in one very real sense, you would have to qualify it a little bit. You'd want to talk and define a little bit those terms, but it's it's asked very generally and very broadly, so I think we can answer it. Listen, one of the clear, clear teachings of the Bible, and you especially see it in the Old Testament narrative and the Old Testament prophets, is if you as an individual or you as a nation choose to defy the moral law of God, there will be consequences. Now, you can frame that in lots of ways because the other aspect, or perhaps the other side of that coin, is always, and this is, this is something that is quite central to our faith as well, is that God is always patient, always long-suffering, always gives all seemingly almost endless opportunities for people and nations to respond to his grace. I mean, he just, he, he just, I, I'm always, we read this a little earlier, you might forget it, but God said, Abraham, I'm not going to give you Canaan yet because my wrath is not yet filled up against the Canaanites. When will God's wrath be filled up against the Canaanites? 480 years later. In other words, you can, you can look at that, interpret that a lot of ways, but certainly it at least means God keeps giving them more and more opportunities to respond to his grace as to who he is and how he's revealed himself. But that downward spiral of Canaan continues. So by the time in... in 
in the, in the uh, stories of the Bible, by the time of the book of Joshua, who, which is the history of the conquest, God's wrath is filled up. And the instrument of his dis- discipline and judgment will be the Israelites. And I mean, you can, every, you can look at it then just objectively, broadly in history. Has any civilization ever endured that has willfully, openly, and defiantly opposed the moral law of God? That's what history is all about. It's the rise and fall of civilizations. There are none. So he, I don't know who this was, but he was probably asking that rhetorically to get everybody to think about the United States. And, and so therefore, I mean, it's, it's an appropriate thing to say. I think we have to be very, very careful if we preach that or teach that, because as I said, the other side of that coin is God is always gracious, always merciful, always patient, always long-suffering. And remember the dialogue that Abraham had with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? If there are 40, 20, 10, right? Will you still? Yes, I will. What's the bottom line conclusion? He couldn't, he couldn't find anybody but Lot. There wasn't anybody left. So, you know, the, the remnant of, of the faithful in the United States is still very significant, still very high. Now, I'm not saying we use that as, well, therefore God won't judge us. That's not what I'm saying. But that God's patient, that's why my prayer and, and what a lot of my preaching, why I do things like this, is to preserve the remnant and get men particularly to be focusing on the things that are really a priority to God. And to be the kind of husbands and fathers and bosses and leaders and all of that that God wants them to be. That's, that's how God manifests his grace. Not through who's going to be elected president. In one very real sense, that's almost, we shouldn't say quite that categorical, but in one sense, that's almost irrelevant. Because quite frankly, any kind of revival or spiritual renewal is not going to come from Washington. It doesn't matter who's elected president. I don't mean that isn't an important issue, but that's, if you look at Chuck Colson before he died, used to talk about evangelical Christians are buying the political illusion. He quoted that from a book that was published in the 1950s. But anyway, what he meant by that is you, we sometimes get to the point, if we just elect the right people, everything's going to be fine. It'll, it'll be fine. The kingdom will come and everything. If that's what you believe, you've got a very skewed view of politics. Because politics is dirty, messy, and ugly. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. It's always dirty, messy, and ugly. It's corrupt. I mean, it really is. Both sides are very corrupt. And I mean, it's just the nature of political power. So you and I step back and say the solution is not political power. The solution is Christ. That doesn't mean we don't work for political righteousness. That's not what it says. Then now listen, I got to stop preaching. I don't know why I got on that. What do you want? <laughs> I guess nothing. <laughs> just kidding, Fred. Uh, you know, uh, applying it to like your your setting as you see young men come in and perhaps led by God to major in X or Y or Z as a major four years of college, and then in the process there's these um, providential things that come up that leads him one way or another way to either change his major or to select certain courses that eventually, if he's walking and seeking God's will may prove to be of, of significant benefit in his life later on. And, and so the application there, uh, maybe you could, uh, you could apply that to illustrate, and also like the men in this room, they're, you know, they're looking for certain positions perhaps uh, in organizations, um, and, um, and, and then other aspects of their, their personal life, their family life. And sometimes it isn't always wonderful. Sometimes it's ugly, it's dark, it's deep, it's lonely. And those are circumstances that we could say are providential, perhaps, do you think? How does that play out? And what would you say to your students or to us 
in regard to things that happen in our lives when we think we're headed right and then we find there's a curveball coming we didn't see it and it really hits us and it's devastating uh, to us well uh, that was a short question it had, it had multiple parts to it and that's a great question it really is. let me respond in, in a very simple way and it is it is really important to state it see given a relationship with God based on faith in Christ if a young man or an older man or any human being does not have a relationship with God uh, in, by faith in Jesus Christ, then God's entire focus, whatever is happening to that person, is as God relentlessly pursues them with his grace, is to get them to a point of faith. So that, and, and so in that sense, it's a little bit of a different way to get, answer your question. But given a person's faith in Christ, in other words, they are a child of God, I think it's the premise of the Bible is that God uses circumstances to mature and grow us. Period. What kind of circumstances? Circumstances that are filled with blessing. Sometimes material blessing, sometimes spiritual blessing, sometimes emotional blessing. Filled with blessing, but sometimes he grows us through the circumstances that test, test our faith grow our faith, develop our character, uh, and make us into the image of his son, which Galatians 4.19 says is the goal of what God's doing, to, to, to make us, transform us into the image of his son. And I would argue this very strongly, and I say this to, to my students, God's way of doing that is different with every human being. It's never the same. Because each one of us around this table is unique. We have unique backgrounds. We have unique temperaments. We have unique care. We have unique, unique lifestyles. We have unique family backgrounds. And all of that explains why we're unique and different. And so God, God will just use whatever circumstances he as the sovereign order of the universe chooses and will providentially guide and direct through everything. And it is hard sometimes to figure out... <laughs> Lord, you know, you throw up your hand and say, Lord, I mean, this week, yeah, I'll just give you an example. It doesn't directly, but it's an illustration. This week, my wife's mother, uh, uh, who's 93 years old, she's very sick. Her heart is failing. She's filling with fluid. She's in a nursing facility lying flat. I mean, we are expecting to call any minute that she's with Jesus. Last night, I got a call from my sister. Actually, it was late afternoon. I got a call from my sister. She's the only one who lives in my, my mother's in the hospital. She had tremendous pain. She has a major bladder infection. She has arrhythmia. She's not 89. And she's in the hospital. I called my wife before I went into class. She says, honey, what's going on here? That was a good question. You know, both of our mothers are, and we're 1,500 miles away. That's just life. That's the reality of life. There's nothing unique about that. That's life. So what's the issue? How's Jim Ekman going to respond to that? How's my wife Peggy going to respond to that? That's the issue. It isn't that there's anything unusual. It isn't that God has singled us out for some atrocious. This is life. Our parents are old. There is going to be a time when everything shuts down and they go to be with Jesus. And that's okay. It's just it's horrible to go through all this. That's life. So, Fred, the answer to your question is God uses the stuff of life to grow us. And you say, I don't like that curriculum. I want to drop that and add another one. Yeah. God says, there's no other way I'm going to do this. And so we have to be like Eliezer. We trust him. And if we don't trust him, then he's going to nudge us along, encouraging us to trust him. So, you know, we have yet to read a verse in the Bible, and it's 10 after. Go ahead. That's all right, Woody. Okay. This is going to seem unimportant. But Anything that emanates from your mouth is not unimportant. Oh, I don't <laughs> the man took out a gold nose ring. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe everybody in the room knows this except me, but do they give a, a woman that's engaged or betrothed uh, <clears throat> a nose ring? The, yes, that was not unusual to do and, that. Is mm -hmm. it like, like a bowl? Mm -hmm. or, uh, <laughs> 
We have. Is that, is that the signal for everybody that she's she's taking? She she it is a it is one of and this is what was chosen and you're referring to verse forty seven, which adds a little piece of information that we do not see in verse twenty two. The gold ring, half shekel, two bracelets, also adds a nose ring. And that is a, it was an ancient Near Eastern custom. That doesn't mean we use it today, although more and more young girls are using it, but it's not, it's not a, a, it's not a transcultural symbol. It's a cultural symbol. Our cultural symbol is a diamond ring. That's our cultural symbol, or at least for the most part in the West it is. And you go to the Middle East today, the cultural symbols of engagement are similar to some of these things. Lots of bracelets. There's almost always a dowry. Usually it involves camels. I'm serious, in the Middle East. It involves camels. It involves animals. We don't do that in the United States. I mean, when, when my, my daughter uh, married Greg, I didn't give a dowry to his family which I'm really thankful we didn't have to do that. But, you know, it's just, we just don't do their cultural, the transcultural principle of God's word is you make a covenant commitment to your wife. That's the transcultural principle. And so what you see here, Woody, is just it's a cultural symbol of an engagement, of a betrothing of a, man, of a, a woman to a man. And what it seems is occurring in verse 47 is Eliezer is rationing it up just a little bit. I'm also adding a nose ring. She has been chosen by God to be Isaac's wife. And so in what we see in verse 34 through verse 49 is, and I'm not going to read that, that is a rehearsal and a review of everything we read in the beginning of this chapter. And I think we said this last week as we concluded, why does, why does the servant of Abraham go through all this again in front of the family of Rebekah? To once again show God has chosen Rebekah. Here's the test I set up, that when I go into this community, I want a woman to come, to, remember all that? And she's going to offer me a drink, and then she's going to offer my camels, which was extremely unusual. And all this, and God, when all that happens, if it happens exactly like I'm asking you to make it happen, then I know she's the one. And that is exactly what occurred. And he just reviews the whole thing. So verse 50, what does Laban, her uncle, conclude? The thing has come from the Lord. So Rebecca's family reaches a conclusion. This is of the Lord, and we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her, go, let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So, so exactly, by verse 50, Rebecca's family has reached a conclusion. This is a God thing. And no matter what we say, if we would protest or anything, it's not going to, because God's in this. Which says something, I think to a degree, it says something about the family. These are God-fearers. These are people that must recognize Yahweh. And they are the relatives of Abraham, distant relatives of Abraham. So it's just, it's just incredibly, it's boring because you just read it. It's exactly the rehearsal of exactly what we read last week. Verse 52, when Abram's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and his servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave her brother and her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they rose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. What is the family practicing? The principle of delay. Let's delay this. Let her stay with us another 10 days. And the way it's put in the Hebrew, it's Eliezer doesn't have a choice. She's staying with us for 10 more days. Verse 56. But he said to them that he would be the servant, Eliezer. Do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered, prospered my way, send me away that I may go by my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Rebecca, come here. 
Will you go with this man? And what'd she say? I will go. So that little tidbit of information is important to demonstrate to us that she's not being forced to go. She's not being coerced to go. Her family isn't pressuring her to go or to stay. Rebecca, what do you want to do? I want to go. So they sent Rebecca away, their sister and her nurse, and Abram's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Now this little, in most of your translation, that's going to be indented. It, it's, it's a little blessing. It may indented, Oh, sister, our sister, you may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Does that sound familiar? That's almost identical to Genesis twenty-two seventeen, what God had said to Abraham. And we talked about that. That has significant messianic implications because the one who will, the offspring who will possess the gate of those is the language that's used in the New Testament of Jesus who will plunder his enemy, Satan. Because you see, part of what the Old Testament and New Testament explain to us is this planet is under the rule of a rebel. And Jesus Christ is about to plunder the kingdom of the rebel. Now, honestly, that is the way to think about this. And the rebel is Satan and his minions, and Jesus is plundering his kingdom. That's how... In the gospel, according to Matthew, when Jesus shows up and he is performing the exorcism, he casts out demons and he, he challenges the demons. And they, you know, in that one account where you know, they go into a bunch of swine, they say, what are you doing here before the day? That's what they say to Jesus, oh, son of God. Because Jesus is plundering the kingdom of Satan. I mean, that, you have to remember, this is rebel-held territory that God is winning back. And so this prophetic statement in verse 60 that's applying to Rebekah, who is now will be the wife of the covenant son, from her is going to come the one who will plunder the gate. And offspring is used by Paul in Galatians 3 as a reference to Jesus. And this is just, this is, I, I, my, my chills go up and down. My this is really exciting stuff. Well, Jim, on that, that, that situation you said about the, 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 the swine, that yeah. you, did, you know, why can we put a time? What time did they think? What were they thinking? The judgment, um, when they would be cast into the lake of fire. Is that why you're here? Yeah. And, you know, the, I mean, all, Jesus directly doesn't answer the question. He just throws them into a bunch of swine, and they go over the great swine dive. <laughs> Most people don't get that. You got it. You're, you're, yeah, they're sharp guys. I, I preach that, and people, they don't get it. You know, say, I'm standing over there. I'm trying to get them to laugh. They don't get it. You know, and then I have to explain, you're swine dive. This is swine dive. Oh, okay, then they laugh. You, know, you guys are sharp. I can't get anything by you. So, I mean, it's just a... It, 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 this is a profound recognition by Rebecca's family of how important she is. And so it's, it's just filled with all kind of prophetic and just things that the scriptures are going to unfold for us. So verse 61, then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels, followed the men. The servant took Rebecca and went his way. Verse 62, now Isaac had returned from Be'er Roy and was drawing in the Negev. That, that, that's in your on your map that's close to the Mediterranean Sea where they live. Now he's back in the Negev. He's back at Beersheba. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and sold. He saw camels coming. Verse 61, and Rebekah lifted up her eyes. Now you can see the parallel. They're both lifting up their eyes. In other words, they're looking in one another's direction. As she's coming to Isaac, Isaac see, she sees herself going toward Isaac. And she said to the servant, meaning to Eliezer, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? 
servant, again, if it's Eliezer, said, It is my master. She took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. Now, before I read the last sentence, something very significant has just occurred. I don't think you probably caught it. Eliezer refers to Isaac as my master. And Rebecca goes into Sarah's tent. You have thus been introduced to the new patriarch and new matriarch of the clan. Sarah's dead. Remember, we read about her. She's buried in Machpelah, near Hebron. So now, who's the new matriarch? Rebecca. Who's the new patriarch? Isaac. So now the covenant arrangement has shifted from Abraham to Isaac. And that's why the very next section, which is the next chapter, will be Abraham who is going to die. So, I mean, that's why this chapter, chapter 24, it's a long one. It's still a lot of things. It just keeps repeating itself, but we already talked about that. But the end conclusion of this is now a major transition has occurred. There's now a new patriarch and a new matriarch. Okay? Please. Like, oh, yeah, he took her into his mother's tent, but... Her mother, his mother had already passed. That's correct. So that was, I missed that. She had, we had to stay, it's very brief, but we had yeah. studied that in the previous chapter. It's very brief, but that's when Abraham bought that land from the Hittite yes, yes. to bury uh, Sarah and so on. But it, it's, this, this is symbolic. And again, for you and me, this isn't particularly, but this, these are Bedouin nomadic people. Abraham is a Bedouin nomadic person. You know, he has his herds and all that. And so, you know, nomadic Bedouins live in tents. Can I tell you a story? Would that be all right? You know, I go to Israel. I haven't, 2014 was the last time I was there. But every year I would go to Israel and spend a lot of time. We're down in Negev. The Bedouins, the Bedouin nomadic peoples are still there. They are not Jews. They're the Bedouin. They're, they are the descendants, really, of this, these tribal groups here. And Israel is struggling with how to deal with them because they acknowledge their Israeli citizenship. They're willing to serve in the Israeli military, but they don't want to be acculturated into Israeli society. They still live in tents. And Israel builds, the state of Israel builds these really nice houses for them. And, and you have this very nice house with a big satellite dish on the roof and an air conditioning. You know where they live? They live in the tents beside the building. Because the Bedouin culture is still, they don't, do not want to cease being the nomadic Bedouins that are part of their heritage for thousands and thousands of years. Do they still travel? They do. They still follow their herds. Mm -hmm. And you see camels. That's where you always, whenever we're there, we always see lots of camels because they're, they're uh, among other things, goats and some other things like that are what they herd. But it's, it's extremely difficult for the Israeli government because they're trying not to be paternalistic but at the same time, they have to insist that they obey the laws and the standards, you know what I mean? And they just won't do it. That's extremely frustrating for the Israeli government. And, uh, that's a story, the sidebar, we're back on track, 25. Abraham took another wife. Why? Sarah has died, whose name was Keturah. We are at the year 2026 B.C., that's where we're at. Abraham is about to die. It's 2026 B.C. And it just lists all of the children she had to Abraham. Zimron, Joshkan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, Jaskin, Father Sheba. I'm not going to read all of those. But these are, these are children and grandchildren of Abraham. And they will come up in the narratives of the Old Testament. The one you probably recognize is Midian. The Midianites, they're nomadic Arab tribes that live to the east. They live in the desert. They live in today what would be Jordan, in the desert. Verse 5, 
Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. All the children of Keturah are not his heirs. Only Isaac is. Verse 6, but to the sons of his concubines, that term concubine, and that, that's an appropriate translation, but it is two, the, the descendants of two of Abraham's children, Ishmael and Keturah. I mean, I should say Hagar and Keturah. It's all of the children that come from them. To those Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So all the descendants of Ishmael and all the descendants of Keturah are to go to the east. And that's what they do. And that's where they all come from and keep creating problems for the Israelites when they occupy their land. Verse 7, these are the days of the years of Abraham, 175 years. That's how long he lived. I love verse 8. I hope whoever preaches my funeral sermon, my memorial service, will say this of me. He breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man full of his years, full of life, and was gathered to his people. A number of years ago, a previous president of Grace, uh, his name was Harold Burkholder, he passed away, and I was asked to preach the memorial service sermon, and I chose this verse as the key verse around which I built my, my sermon. Because Dr. Burkholder was like that. He was an incredible man, just in ministries all over the world and everything. He, he was in, he was in 89, I think, when he passed away. He was an old man, full of life, full of years. Don't you want that to be said of you? In other words, maybe I'm through a lot, a lot of struggles, a lot of testings, a lot of things you seem stumble. But God's stamp on his life, an old man full of years, gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamran. The field that Abram purchased from the Hittites. There Abram was buried with Sarah, his wife. Now, I told you that before. Today, in the modern city of Hebron, which is under the control of the Palestinian Authority, there's an enormous church built over this cave. Pretty certain that's where they're, but it's very difficult to get there today because of the, the Palestinian threat. But anyway, so it's still there. We know where it is. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy, and Beer Lahai Roy is on this map, Abraham and Canaan. It's right here along that major route that goes to Asia. That's where he is. He's right in the edge of the Negev Desert. That's all telling you, just geographically. Verse 12. I, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but these are the generations of Ishmael. So verse 12 through 18 just summarize the children and descendants of Ishmael. And it tells us in verse 16, 12 princes were born to him. That's what was prophesied. That was what prophesied earlier in Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. Ishmael, you will be the father of 12 princes. And these are the years of his life. He lived 137 years. All right, now verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. And what we are about to look at in the remaining moments of class, this is an extremely important section. Yes, please, go ahead. In verse 17. Yes. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Yes. who are the people of Ishmael? Well, uh, you you can see all in verse 13, in verse 14, and yeah. verse 15 yeah. are the 12 princes and all the descendants of Ishmael. Yeah. And they had they had gone to, they had gone, actually they had gone to the west. They had gone down along shore and to the coast of uh, Egypt. So um, tradition and much of that tradition is centered in Islam, because Islam believes that Ishmael is the covenant son, right. that he is buried in Egypt. So, but that impossible to prove that. But in, in verse 8, when Abraham dies and is gathered to his people, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming he went to heaven. Oh, right? you're asking it that way. Uh, yeah, this gathered to his people is a Hebrew euphemism for he died. Okay. He, jo- he joined all his other descendants who died. <laughs> 
you know, that's all that means. It, it isn't a theological comment on his, his eternal destiny. That's not what it's saying. It's just a euphemism in the Hebrew language is he died. He joined all his people who had died. <laughs> just like you and I will join our people and die unless Jesus comes back for us. All right, verse 19. Now, I want to introduce this because I want to really slow down here. Because now we're back. I mean, this is what the Bible is doing. The Bible is just saying Abraham had, remember, Abraham had two other sons. Excuse me, two other wives. Hagar, who had Ishmael, and Keturah, whom he married after Sarah died. She had a lot of children. Just, it just accounts for that, helps us to understand that, puts it in historical context. So the Bible is historically accurate. Now, yes. Was Keturah a young woman that she had so many kids? Or was she about his age? Uh, the Bible is silent on that, but because of all the kids she had, yeah. the assumption is she was probably younger. But how young? I mean, it's impossible to conclude that from what the scriptures say. It, we don't know that. Okay. All right, now I want to slow down here, and, and, and we probably won't even get all this done today, but these are the generation, verse 19 of Isaac. Now, just it reviews, it reviews the history. Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. That tells us what happened in verse, chapter 24. He's 40 years old. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. How many times have we seen this? Now, I, I don't think we can prove this. But it certainly is reasonable to conclude. So many of these wives are barren by God's providential sovereign choice to prove his miraculous, supernatural intervention, guidance, provision, and oversight of all that's happening. These are covenant people. And God is going to supernaturally provide in each one of these situations. That indisputably, you will always be able to conclude God is supernaturally guiding and superintending these events for his glory. Now, Isaac, and this is a really important point too, Isaac is doing the right thing. He's the servant leader of his home. He's the servant leader of his wife, and he prays and intercedes for her. I'm sure this is true, and, and, and I know it was in our family. Infertility of a wife is a very difficult thing for a gal to accept. It's a very difficult thing because it often gets to the core of her identity. And so Isaac prays for Rebecca. Second part of verse 21, and Yahweh granted his prayer, and Rebecca conceived. Isaac's 40. We don't know how exactly how long it is till she conceives. But verse 22, okay, she's pregnant. Verse 22, the children, please notice it's plural, struggled together within her. The Hebrew word that is translated struggled is a very intense verb because, I mean, I've never been pregnant. But from what I know from talking to women who have been pregnant, babies kick and move around and you feel it. That's not the word here. This word is translated in other parts of the Old Testament as crushing, oppressing. So this isn't just the normal movement of two little boys inside the mother's room. I mean, the language that we are to conclude, even in the womb, they're fighting each other. Because you do know her two children, don't you? It's Jacob and Esau. Do they get along? Do they like each other? No. They are the two most opposite boys you could possibly imagine coming out of one woman's, one woman's womb. And it started in utero. And she said, please note this. 
If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. It might have gone something like this. Oh, Lord, thank you for answering our prayers and allowing me to conceive. Thank you that I've successfully conceived. But, Lord, there's something going on inside here. All my women who serve me and all the women I've known have never had a pregnancy like this. There's something going on inside my body. What is it, Lord? And so he tells her, two nations are in your womb. What does that mean? Exactly what it says. Because Jacob is the covenant son of Israel. Esau will be the founder of what nation? The Edomites. You probably don't know of them or you haven't heard of them or it's been a while. They are a major, major, major group in the Old Testament. Two nations. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. Now, when you have two little boys in a mother's womb, the older is what? The one who comes out first. (laughs) So the one who comes out first, which is the firstborn, the heir, primogeniture laws of ancient Israel, he will inherit everything, he'll get all the blessing, but that's not going to happen. The older, firstborn, the one who comes out first, will serve the younger. Who decided that? God decided that. God divinely chooses that Jacob will rule over Esau. And yet every stipulation and every standard of the traditions of the ancient Near Eastern world should have said, Esau is the Lord of the the family. He will rule over Jacob. God says, no, he won't. Esau will serve Jacob which upsets every tradition in the ancient Eastern world. But who chooses this? God does. And you know, Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 9. When he's talking about why did God choose Israel? Why did God elect Israel to be the chosen one? And Paul responds, quotes from this. Understand why you're asking the question, but let me take you back to Genesis chapter 25. God chose Jacob. Just like God chooses whomever he wants to be in positions of authority and power. It's up to God. And that gets into the doctrine of election and all that. But the point is, what God is saying to Rebecca as she probes and tries to figure out what in the world is happening in my body, God says, Rebecca, there's something quite profound. Two nations are in your womb. And they're fighting even now are going to result in fighting when they come out of the womb. But the older, the first one out, is going to serve the younger. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, his body like hairy cloak. They called him Esau. Esau is Hebrew for red. Afterward, his brother came out. Now, this is extremely important. With his heel, excuse me, with his hand holding Esau's heel. So that struggle and fighting continues even in the birth. Jacob's grabbing a hold of Esau's heel. You're not going out first. Yes, I am. No, you're not. I mean, I'm serious. That's the, that's the language of this. So his name is Jacob. Jacob. Heel catcher. Manipulator. Controller. Fighter. Wanting to do it my way, regardless of what any traditions say. That's Jacob. 
Jacob is a heel catcher, a manipulator, a controller, a conniver. He's duplicitous. He's deceptive. Jacob will always do it his way. And you know what? He's a mama's boy. Mama supports him. Esau is a daddy's boy. Isaac supports him. This wasn't a great family. This was a family who was constant infighting. And instead of Rebecca and Isaac together raising the boys, they're very divided. And it's this mixture, it's this interplay between the responsible free agencies of the human and the divine sovereignty and providence of God. If you can put all that together and figure it out, I can. But God said the younger's going to serve uh, uh, the, uh, the older is going to serve the younger. Esau's going to serve Jacob, even though he's the firstborn. And Jacob coming out, you get a sense of his temperament, his personality. He's the heel catcher. That is why, until fairly recently, because English for Jacob is James. If you go to the New Testament, you open the New Testament in Greek, and you go to the little epistle right after Hebrews, the epistle of James. You know what the Greek word is? The epistle of Yaakov. It's Jacob. But no English person wanted to name their kid. You, honestly, you will search in vain in English history to find very many families naming their son Jacob. They name him James. Jacob's a wonderful name. It's a good name. Lots of people are named Jacob. But in English, they don't like Jacob and they stay away from it. Now, it doesn't matter anymore. Nobody even thinks about that. It's just a, it's a little tidbit of history. Because Jacob is never a good character. Jacob is a manipulator. You know the story. You're going to start seeing him. Jacob will always do things. He, he's promised the blessing. I'm going to get the blessing my way. He's promised the covenant line. Yeah, but I'm going to get it my way. And that's why we have to get to Genesis 32, where God breaks Jacob. He breaks him of that self-centered, self-indulgent will. And Jacob will limp into the promised land. We're getting there. We have to see why God has to do that. Okay, now, any questions? It's almost time to quit. You with me? And this, I wanted to get, this is amazing. I wanted to get this far, and I didn't think we'd get this far. Uh, maybe we can pick it up next time, but... Um... You said uh, providence, uh, yes. you know, and that could be an element here. Um, but God knows yes. our life from before we're born, as He's done here mm-hmm. until our end time. Um, and was it voluntarily? Uh, was it voluntary on the part of these two boys, one to select God's will and God's way for his life? Uh, as opposed to not, um, that wasn't programmed because, I don't think it can be programmed, can it? Well, I guess it could be programmed, but would it have been programmed that it would turn out that way, or was that of their own free will, would you say? Sort of a balance there. That Jacob would be the covenant son is decreed by God. That's what verse 23 is about. How that is going to occur is what unfolds. Jacob, knowing this, because Rebecca told him, Jacob, you're the covenant son. God told me when you were in utero that you're the covenant son. You're my boy. And I'm going to do everything to make sure you get it. So instead of trusting God, it's the old railroad track. You remember? Um, it's you know it's the railroad track, and this is the this is the the difficulty of how we try to work through this. And I've done this a million times. So if you remember, one side of the railroad track is the responsible freedom of the individual human. The other side of the railroad track is divine sovereignty. This is what God decrees. This is what God decides. But you see, we're not automatons, we're not robots. So life is the interplay of these two things. And verse 23 
There are two nations in your womb, Rebecca. And I'm telling you right now, this is what I've decreed. The older will serve the younger. That's divine sovereignty. It is up to Jacob and Rebecca and Esau exercising the responsible freedom to submit to that divine decree of God and to trust him with that. Does Jacob want to trust God with this? Not really. I'm better than Esau. I'm chosen, and mom's going to help me, and I'm going to get this my way. And that's what he does. Instead of trusting God to work out what God had decreed, I'm going to do it. He is Frank Sinatra of 4,000 years ago. I did it my way. That's exactly what he's doing. And so Rebecca, instead of being the kind of godly mother she should be supporting Isaac, where she and Isaac just said, okay, God has decreed that Jacob is going to be the covenant son. Even though Esau's the firstborn, that's what God said. So what we have to do is obediently submit to this and just help our two boys to understand this is what God has decreed. And so Esau, you and Jacob, you have to now, we're going to work out things to where that is not what happens. Instead, Isaac goes with Esau and Rebekah goes and they pit one another against each other. And it's, it's horribly dysfunctional. It creates enormous bitterness. And Jacob just decides with Rebekah's support, we're going to do it our way and we're going to manipulate. And so Jacob gets everything that God promised, not the way God wanted it to occur, but his way. But God's still providentially guiding all of this to where you get to. He goes back to Laban, where Rebecca came from. And it's really, you know that? Where I'm getting ahead and i got to stop. And Laban is a, a master conniver and manipulator. And he just, he steals all kind of stuff from Jacob and steals seven extra years. And so finally, 14 years later, Jacob finally leaves Padamaram and leaves him. Very wealthy man, has lots of cattle, but he has two wives, Leah and Rachel. And he's going back to the promised land. And he's absolutely terrified because who is waiting for him on the other side of the border of the promised land? Because he crosses the Jordans. And one of his servants comes and says, Jacob, Esau is coming and he has 400 men with him. If you're Jacob, are you thinking, oh, wonderful, welcoming party from my brother? (laughs) So when we get to that, Genesis 32, you'll see. I mean, so God is doing, is God's permitting Jacob to manipulate and connive, but he's going to break him. Because if he's going to be the covenant son, he's got to be broken of this conniving, manipulating, duplicitous way of living. That's what's going to happen. The Bible tells the story, warts and all. It really does. Jacob is not a great guy. He has enormous character flaws. But as with each one of us around the table who have significant character flaws, God still uses us. That's called grace. Aren't you glad for that? I got to quit. The last four minutes I was preaching, so pardon me for that. I wasn't teaching. I was preaching, so... Tell me to stop preaching and I'll just teach. (laughs) Father, we're grateful for the study of your word as we see the significant characters of the Old Testament. And honestly, Lord, I think we can see ourselves in some of these. And this incredibly difficult theological tension between responsible freedom of the individual and your sovereignty and providence. But that's the way the Bible presents it. And so we thank you that we can see it and understand it that way when we just studied this incredible long section where Rebecca becomes the wife of Isaac. Your providence is all over that. Eliezer tests you and trusts you and watches you incredibly provide the right girl that God wants for Isaac. And now we also see here your providence and your sovereignty in providing for the pregnancy of Rebecca and even decreeing to her that these two boys fighting in her womb are going to produce two nations. 
And Lord, you're going to have to deal with that. And you deal with it masterfully as you break and shape and mold the character of Jacob. But it takes a long time to do that. And we can learn from that as well. Bless these dear men. Watch over them in their many responsibilities as husbands, as uh, as fathers, grandfathers in some cases. Their work responsibilities. Some of them are in, in charge of many, many people in their jobs. Others are working on their own. Some are retired on all the different facets of responsibility. God, bless them, use them, give them insight and wisdom. And as we always try to pray, help all of us to represent you well in what we say and do in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.